Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we discuss an important new book in the field of Islamic studies by chatting with its author. Jeanette Jouili's fascinating new book, Pious Practice and Secular Constraints, Women in the Islamic Revival in Europe, published by Stanford University Press in 2016, navigates practices and challenges of living pious ethical lives in inhospitable conditions. Through a finely textured analysis of Couturian practices of piety among conservative Muslim women in France and Germany, this book offers a nuanced and analytically rich examination of the intersection of ethics, secular conditions, and religious normative imaginaries. The strength of this book lies in the way it brilliantly hews the tensions of everyday life with sharp theoretical reflections on questions of ethics, moral agency, and gender. Although a commentary of aspirations of piety among Muslim women in Europe, this book also shows fractures in European promises of pluralism. Here is my conversation with Jeanette Juili. Hello, Jeanette. How are you doing? I'm fine. How are you? Uh, Very good. Thank you so much for your time and uh, for this uh, wonderful book uh, that uh, is teaching us so much about a very important uh, context and uh, set of questions that hopefully we'll get the chance to uh, talk about in detail today. Uh, uh, Jeanette, uh, we have a tradition on new books in Islamic studies that our first question is always biographical. Uh, Could you share with our listeners a bit about how you became a scholar interested in Islam, uh, Muslim communities, and how you got to work on this particular project? Okay, so biographically, so when I was, uh, when I started my undergraduate studies in Germany, I was deeply interested in understanding myself a little bit better, I guess. My mother's German, my father's from Tunisia, so that was, you know, one of my intellectual curiosities. So I started with Islamic studies as a major and political science as a minor, and when I did my something like a master's, the magister in German, um, I then decided that I wanted to study Muslim communities in Europe. Before that, I was more interested in uh, in the, the Middle East and North Africa. Um, so I did another MA in anthropology and sociology uh, with a focus on migration and uh, ethnic minorities. And then I did my PhD in a kind of double program, anthropology and sociology, and began then studying um, Muslims in Germany and France. Now, uh, let me begin with a broader uh, question uh, in relation to this book, which is, uh, let's talk a bit about the larger conceptual theme and argument that you pursue in this book. And I I found particularly interesting this framing that you have at the beginning of the book, uh, this idea of uh, investigating uh, Muslims who are practicing Islam in inhospitable environments, that in some ways forms the larger uh, bedrock of your project. So could you share with us what the larger uh, theme is and the argument is that you're trying to uh, pursue in this book? 
Yes. So um, in the beginning of the 2000s, when I started this book, um, there was still a lot of comparative literature on European countries, how they integrate uh, foreigners, migrant communities, relations to race and ethnicity, uh, religious pluralism and so on. And what came up in the literature was that countries, and that has changed since then, right? So so we're talking really about the early 2000s. Um, what is what came through this literature was that countries like the UK, the Netherlands, you know, perhaps Sweden were considered to be these quintessential multicultural countries that endorse multiculturalism and have tried to accommodate in various ways the religious and racial minorities. Germany and France appeared as these um, countries resistant to multiculturalism, France for its strong republican and assimilationist tradition, and Germany because of its um, particular understanding of Germanness as um, based in blood, um, just in 2000, really reviewing its kind of outdated or obsolete nationality law. Um, and since and, and, and until then, really kind of refusing even the idea of naming itself a my immigration country. So Germany and France appeared as these kind of um, countries that resisted um, making space for um, ethnic and religious minorities in terms of institution building, in terms of um, giving them more space uh, in, in terms of religious practices. Um, at the same time, of also, we saw in France and lesser known in Germany, um, these headscarf affairs popping up in the public sphere. In, in France, of course, that was internationally mediated, uh, you know, uh, discussed in the media, um, about the headscarf affair for schoolgirls in Germany, it was less, you know, discussed, but also very present within the national sphere um, about uh, teachers' headscarf or, in general, civil servants, uh, whether they were allowed to be to wear headscarves or not. So we had at that time in both countries a kind of uh, anxiety around Muslim practices that were that seemed to me particular. Uh, and that deserve to be more studied, and I thought comparatively it might be interesting to bring them together rather than focus on one context, because then I could better understand how individuals in similar contexts, but nonetheless uh, in different discursive narratives or dis dis different discursive traditions, negotiate these cons similar constraints in particular kind of national ways. Let's talk a bit more about the context of the study, which primarily situated in France and uh, Germany. And uh, you show and you argue that, you know, oftentimes these two contexts are seen as very different from each other and so on. But you also emphasize certain overlaps that they have. Uh, so could you say a bit more about this uh, contextual uh, background of your study and what kinds of uh, uh, major features and overlaps uh, between these contexts that you identify? Yes, so as I said in the previous answer, um, France has a Republican assimilation. Individuals are being um, uh, assimilated into the Republic as individuals and not as members of a community. And uh, those who want to become French have to leave their religious and racial kind of background at home and appear in the public sphere as neutral 
French citizens. Um, and that, of course, had consequences for um, how Muslims were able or not were not able to negotiate their claims to religious difference and to accommodation of their practices in the public sphere, which is why, for example, we had these very passionate headscarf um, affairs throughout the 90s and the 2000s until 2004 when the law um, banning conspicuous religious signs came out. Um, at the same time, France kind of... Um, holds up that it is a welcoming nation for immigrants, that it, it considers itself a, a nation that has uh, traditionally accommodated immigrants, but with the request, as I said, to kind of um, distance themselves from their ethnic and racial and religious background and then become French citizens uh, with the, the notion that French citizenship is something that is universal, whereas the other identities are particular and don't belong into a universal space. Um, in, Fra in Germany, however, it's a quite different history. Um, German-ness, as I said before, is, uh, has been traditionally defined by uh, blood, by race, and interestingly, even after the Second World War, this has not been revised. So in spite of, um, uh, in spite of recruiting um, a large amount of uh, guest workers in the 70s, 60s and 70s to fill their, um, their empty factories, um, these migrants were not considered migrants precisely, but as guest workers. That means they come, they work and they go back. Obviously, they didn't go back. Obviously, they had children and children's children, and uh, even the third generation was not yet considered German because of this idea of Germanness being, you know, based in blood. And so um, it took Germany quite a while to get around the idea that they are there to stay and that they should, you know, be accommodated. As I said, in 2000, finally, the nationality law was revised, and um, eventually it was possible for descendants of migrants to claim a nationality. And from that point on, we also see a kind of a new effort being made in Germany to discuss now, you know, the role of the Muslim community in, in the German understanding of um, relation between church and state. Germany has a particular arrangement between the established churches and the state in their kind of cooperation with each other which, of course, is quite different to um, France, which I didn't mention earlier, which sees itself as a secular, I mean, a very laic country uh, where um, religion and, uh, and, and state is assumed to be very, you know, uh, clearly separated. Of course, scholarship has shown extensively that this is not, this separation is not that easy. But that's the self-understanding, whereas in Germany, the self-understanding is that religious in, uh, recognized religious institutions and the state are cooperating. So the question is now how can or should Muslims also be kind of cooperating with the state? So these are different, um, you know, backgrounds, but both, uh, both made it more easy for, uh, more difficult um, at the time that I, I was, and even until today, I would say, but that made it more difficult at the time that I started to study these communities to uh, negotiate their particular religious practices within the public sphere, to search accommodation of their practices, for example, um, to 
ha- be granted the right to, inst- uh, to to establish schools, which is quite different uh, different in contexts like the Netherlands or the UK. Now, one of the major conceptual threads that uh, bind uh, this book is your uh, the way that you work with Aristotelian notions of ethics, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. you yourself describe it as a rather eclectic approach that you follow. <laughs> and I was wondering if you could say a bit more about this aspect of how you draw on and mobilize uh, Aristotelian notions of ethics in terms of this ethnography and the life, yeah. uh, the pious lives that you examine in this yeah. book. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, eclectic, I think, because, first of all, I'm not a philosopher, I'm an anthropologist, and I would say probably all anthropologists of ethics that work with Aristotelian notions do it in a, you know, eclectic or selective way, uh, because we are committed to our ethnographical fieldwork, to our interlocutors, and not to theories, right, to, uh, to you know, to Aristotle, for, the, for instance. So, um for me, what was interesting with Aristotle's understanding of ethics, of course, you know, and here I follow uh, in line with other anthropologists of ethics, is that his concept is praxeological in nature. It's praxis-oriented. It does not separate mind from body. Uh, it doesn't. Fo- it's not like the Kantian ethics, reason, focused purely on reason. So um, it allows us to think uh, embodied actions in connection and disciplines in connection with ethics. Um, so uh, what, uh, and, and when I started to uh, study uh, ethical practices and started reading uh, Aristotle, Aristotle's work, again, initiated through other anthropologists who were doing that at the time, um, I was particularly interested in two concepts. Um, the the more known, perhaps, concept of uh, Aristotle's habitus that thinks about this constitution of the self through uh, repetitive dis- self-disciplines, um, but then also the other concept of moral reasoning, more reasoning as this kind of deliberation in context of difficulties, what is the right thing to do. And that really helped me to better get a grasp of my, my interlocutor's practices because they were concerned with two things. On the one hand, they they wanted to become, you know, good, pious, practicing Muslims, which was difficult for them, you know, to develop the the necessary self-discipline, to pray regularly, to um, dress in a certain way, to behave in a certain way. But at the same time, living in the context they lived, this was constantly uh, connected to how do you negotiate now these practices and these modes of lives in a context that is not that welcoming and where you def- really need to navigate these spheres. So, so the concept of the you know self-cultivation of the habitus and of moral reasoning really became the framework of my book where in the first part I look at these efforts to constitute this pious self and then the second part I look at so how do they do that outside of their house, right? Outside of the Islamic institutions, how do they um, develop that or how do they na- navigate the secular secular constraints as I say, um, trying to figure out how, how, how to practice out there what I found interesting, perhaps just to add very briefly, was when looking at the literature among anthropologists who, who were inspired by Aristotelian ethics, there was kind of a division in the field. 
uh, you had those anthropologists who would pick up the concept of habitus via Foucault and a kind of post-structuralist lens to understand ethics as a modality of power and to think how power enables a certain way of being in the world. And then on the other hand, you had um, anthropologists of ethics who used the concept of moral reasoning to make a more humanist claim of um, of agency that is independent of power structures. So I haven't seen scholars using both terms together, but each of these concepts for very different kind of ontological objectives. And for me, it was really interesting to bring them two together with the understanding that um, ethics, and there are followed, you know, I would say um, post-structuralist approach and, you know, following especially Talal Assad, who thinks that power is a potential potentiality that enables agency and um, and more reasoning in that sense is not disconnected from, uh, you know, from self-cultivation because self-cultivation through disciplines actually allows to develop the perception and the feeling that then allows for a moral reasoning. So that's just kind of the... Um, broader theoretical mm -hmm. framework in which in which that that discussion takes place mm -hmm. so let's get to the ethnography and uh, uh, let's uh, get to the ethnography via another key concept uh, that uh, is very central to your work which is this idea of affective learning communities that mm -hmm. you develop mm -hmm. uh, so could you say a bit more about how your ethnography showcases the interaction of knowledge and affect in the lives of the women uh, you study yeah so what I found really fascinating when sitting in these Islamic associations where women went to study, uh, taking Islamic classes in different subject matters, I was especially interested in those classes that um, were more practice-oriented. So how do you practice in contemporary life? Uh, how can you, um, uh, how can you uh, use fiqh, for example, for everyday practices and so on? And, and what I found fascinating was the importance or the significance of the relations between the women. They always call each other the sisters, right? So the kind of relations between the sisters in that learning context where it was, where the women never just said, okay, I'm learning some content, but I'm learning something that has an impact on my emotional state and being with these other women precisely nourish my faith. So um, I was struck, and I, I specifically started to pay attention to that when one of the teachers came back from her maternity leave and told me, I haven't been teaching this class for six months now, and, um, you know, I miss the sisters, and I, uh, I felt my iman, so my faith was diminishing, and I really need that. I need to be with the sisters. I know the stuff that I'm teaching, but just being with them and talking with them and exchanging the f how, how these things make us feel is nourishing my faith. And um, and that was and then once I kind of paid attention to that, I saw it again and again how the teachers emphasized, you know, outside the class you should meet together. Uh, the, the centers were often organizing social events, um, you know, not connected to learning, so sport activities, cultural activities, etc., that really tried to cement that relationship. And I thought that was really something interested, interesting for me, that 
learning was never disconnected from with who do you learn and what are the feelings that you have with those where you share this learning space. Now, another major uh, theme, and I, th- I thought a very productive uh, theme uh, uh, of uh, this book was uh, this idea that this process of cultivating a pious life is never linear. This, there is a mm-hmm. non a non yeah. uh, non linearity to this process, and there mm-hmm. were some very interesting moments in your book where you show these uh, moments of doubt and apprehension mm-hmm. that many of your actors also uh, confronted. Uh, uh, I was wondering if you could share a couple of those moments, and then what kinds of pedagogical techniques were employed or uh, 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 drafted. Uh, as a way to address these moments of doubt and apprehension and so on. Could you say a bit more about this dimension of your of your project? Yes. So, as you said, um, what was really interesting for me was how, to what extent this, this effort to constitute yourself as a pious self was more about the effort than the results. So, uh, the women constantly talked about that, um, that, you know, there are fallbacks, then, you know, doubts come out of, out of the, the fallbacks and out of the uh, failure to, to discipline yourself or to act morally in different contexts. And, and these um, doubts or fallbacks, they could, you know, take place in very different contexts. Some, some were related to just the simple fact that you lack the, perhaps the will or the, the energy to do certain things like waking up at four o'clock in the morning to pray or, you know, do this five times a day, or, you know, uh, you lack the will to, um, to dress in a certain way that would not, you know, draw attention to your beauty or something like that. Um, other, other, um, conflicts were connected to the difficulties they felt in, in acting practices in a context that was not, where this was actually, you know, kind of stigmatizing, right? To to um, so the un, an inability, for example, to put to don the headscarf because of the fear of, um, you know, repercussions. And um, and what I thought was interesting was when they brought these kind of conflicts and doubts toward to their teachers and addressed them there. Um, there was the general pedagogy that was enacted by the teachers and by the kind of more senior peers was usually to focus on the intentions right the near rather than the um rather than the result so it doesn't matter if you fail but your intention should be right and you need to work on your attention rather than on the result and um and that was really conceptualized with um with the concept of the you know jihad and nafs so this kind of struggle against the lower self that is considered to be part of the, you know, general trajectory. So it's a very different concept than assuming there's kind of a linear self-perfection going on because the jihad enough is something that everyone was clear about, that this is something you do your whole life. You will never, you know, be as perfect as, you know, not needing that anymore. And that was interesting for me because, you know, given that I was working with this, you know, Aristotelian notion of self-cultivation, Aristotle didn't seem to have the same understanding because for him, ethical self-cultivation should uh, lead to a stable ethical habitus. And all these kind of failures to do so or doing so kind of without really feeling like to do it was not considered ethics. 
right? That was kind of it was it was it was considered a failing state, but not part of the ethical work. So so that brought me to thinking of um, you know ethical kind of developmental stages in this nonlinear way, more messy way. Uh, but this doesn't mean that it was you know less taken seriously. It was just theorized differently with you know and there I had to look at specific Islamic understandings of of self-cultivation that sometimes departed then from Aristotle. Let's return to uh, the larger theme of this book which is uh, you know practicing Islam in inhospitable environments. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a chapter in which you devote uh, uh, addressing uh, this question in the context of the everyday lives of uh, your uh, subjects mm -hmm. uh, uh, where you talk about ways in which they navigate the hostile secular conditions in public spaces in France and Germany. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, could you say a bit more about how your interlocutors uh, negotiated and navigated that hostile uh, secular yeah. con conditions and spaces in their everyday uh, lives? Yes. So um, one of the crucial questions, of course, for all these women were... Um, the headscarf or no headscarf. I, I mean, it really came down often to this question because uh, unlike, you know, again, to mention different contexts, like unlike the UK or the Netherlands, in Germany and in France, wearing the headscarf would have extreme repercussions on possibilities for professional careers. Many of my interlocutors, not all, but many were women who were first-generation students, university students who had a good education and ha who had professional aspirations, uh, aspirations that they not only connected to their own kind of individual desires for upward social mobility, but also connected it to this idea of, you know, our community is socially and economically marginalized and we need to kind of contribute to uplifting it, right? And uh, this goes through us and through accessing to, you know, good positions where we have, you know, some kind of influence where we can, you know, shape public opinions and so on. And for many of these women, um, then the question was, uh, I cannot really do that if I wear a headscarf. Um, and, and I had a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of interlocutors who, who shared with me their their struggles, their worries about, figuring out what the right thing was because on the one hand um they 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 wanted to wear the headscarf because they considered it a religious obligation that of which they were convinced so conviction was always important but um they also wanted to you know deconstruct stereotypes and you know be professionally active and so um so they were in this kind of conflict, right? Um, what is better to uh, have wear the headscarf and then perhaps abandon a you know very promising professional careers? And women had like very concrete examples, right? One woman who wanted to become a medical doctor, one woman who was doing her PhD but couldn't get you know a teaching position, um, and so on and so on. And um, and the question then was. Uh, I can pursue my career with, you know, by abandoning the, the headscarf, but will I really be able then to deconstruct the stereotypes about Muslim women that I want to do? And I really wanted to get away from this idea, you know, one is submitting to one kind of constraint or, you know, <laughs> resisting another kind of constraint, but uh, 
you know, women decided in very different directions. Some, you know, take, took off their headscarves. Some said, no, I can't do this because then I'm submitting also to the stereotypes that, you know, disenable us to be in this space. But I wanted to kind of hint to that reasoning, this moral reasoning that, you know, whatever their particular idiosyncratic uh, decisions were, really um, in the broader reasoning, it was about what is the right thing to do, right? And um, and I thought that was quite interesting in all their struggles with, uh, you know, navigating secular spaces. It turned into a larger ethical endeavor where, um, you know, it was not just about we are suffering here and we cannot have our religious rights, you know, respected. But, um, yeah, what is the right thing to do? And that's an ethical challenge to us. And even the kind of difficulties we face are ethical challenges. And how do we... Uh, kind of work with them, you know, or how do we tackle them uh, in the best way possible? And then, of course, we I had just other practical and kind of fun moments uh, when, you know, women try to that, you know, um, outside of these deeper ethical struggles, just, you know, how do you pray if you're not supposed to pray? And, you know, they were hiding in different spaces of their job in the library looking for, you know, spaces to pray. Sometimes I had to stand like the guard, you know, in some corner or hallway, and, you know, while they were praying in the library. And I was kind of being the guard looking that no one comes to see them. So there are all these little struggles of, you know, in the everyday life, how do you adapt and kind of create your little techniques to circumvent interdictions to do the thing you feel you have to do? So as a, a final uh, substantive uh, question, uh, uh, Janet, let's uh, think a bit about the larger implications of this project. And you talk about this in your uh, uh, last chapter or uh, yeah. epilogue. Uh, how do you see this project contributing to discussions, uh, current discussions around questions of Islam, citizenship and pluralism uh, yeah. in, in the European context? What do you see the larger implications of this project? Yes. Yeah, so um, one thing that I've... I've seen in many debates at the time on, you know, citizenship and religious pluralism was this idea that religious citizens need to be make an extra effort to um, to kind of become part of the broader civic traditions. Um, they need to endorse some kind of secular uh, citizenship ethics, you know, if possible, perhaps either distance themselves from their religious ethics or, if not possible, then at least try to translate their religious ethics into secular ethics. And, you know, authors like or scholars like Habermas um, and other authors who work on cosmopolitanism have, uh, Ulrich Beck, for example, have written a lot about that. And, and obviously I was not satisfied with that. Um, and looking at my interlocutors and their struggles through their ethical, like religious or pious ethical understandings, always integrating their individual pious struggles into this broader commitment to a social good, right? What I said before, this kind of moral reasoning that is committed to um, integrating the individual struggle into a broader social good and making and, and kind of negotiating really for the sake of others, not just of, for the sake of yourself. Um, there was something really interesting in that approach where I felt that, you know, that can help me to rethink, um, you know, these kind of dominant approach to citizenship. Um, 
and 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 I came to this kind of understanding that uh, for pious individuals, the care for the self and the care for others is not disconnected, and um, that that this might help us to broaden up uh, these. Um, these kind of dominant secular citizenship ethics that require either translation or distanciation from religious ethics. But, you know, here's an example that shows us that there are different trajectories that, you know, that uh, lead to citizenship ethics, and they could be, you know, also religious-inspired. So for me, this was really an interesting moment in thinking about religious ethics, how they contribute to enlarging concepts of citizenship ethics. And that, of course, um, then fits into, you know, a broader space of how can we think more pluralistically around citizenship ethics. So as we're coming towards the end of our time, uh, Janet, could you uh, share with us uh, what's the next uh, project? Yeah, so my next or my current actually book project that is entitled right now, the working title is Between Religious Ethics and State Discipline, the Islamic Artistic Scene in the Post-77 UK. Um, And here I investigate uh, Muslim popular culture, especially music and performing arts in urban Britain at a time when Muslim youth has become a particular target of preventing violent extremism programs in the UK. So I'm looking on the one hand at how pious British Muslim, uh, Muslims kind of um, enact or use culture to fuse piety and moral norms with artistic creativity and how they uh, negotiate different cultural and religious ideals. And at the same time, I look at how um, then particular state discourses and state policies around the provi- preventing violent extremism narrative have, you know, at different times differently uh, try to cooperate or um, I don't want to say co-opt but have tried to work with that cultural scene Pious Practice and Secular Constraints Women in the Islamic Revival in Europe by Jeanette Joeli published by Stanford University Press uh, Thank you so much uh, Jeanette for your time for this uh, uh, wonderful uh, book that I'm sure will spark many conversations in multiple fields and uh, for your erudition and comments uh, today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. So this was my conversation with Jeanette Joeli about her brilliant new book, Pious Practice and Secular Constraints. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Please also join us next time for another fresh episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Stay well, take care, and keep listening to new books in Islamic studies.